Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. Since we last recorded, I have gotten into the comic series Heathen by Natasha Altarichi, which is basically about a lesbian Viking warrior on a quest to overthrow the patriarchy and also Odin, which has been very fun so far. I've read the first two volumes. Good times. I've also been on a bit of a nonfiction kick lately, so I've been reading Uncomfortable Labels, My Life as a Gay Autistic Trans Woman by Laura Kate Dale, which is offering like a really interesting perspective that I have not read a bunch about so far. Is there anything that you've been up to or into lately, Pi, that you'd like to tell our listeners about? I've been starting a new summer job, so I haven't had a ton of time to finish anything recently, but I have been reading two excellent Slavic fantasy books. These Feathered Flames by Alexander Avery is inspired by the Firebird myth, and The Wolf and the Woodsman by Ava Reed is inspired by Hungarian and Jewish history, and they're both excellent. I'm really excited to finish them. Ooh, yeah, I've heard really good things about both of those. I'm excited to read them. So way back in our very first episode, Icebreakers and Seal Maidens, I introduced myself by saying that I was at home on break for my semester, <laughs> reading X-Men comics to fill the quarantine void. And that was actually very well-placed foreshadowing because the topic of today's episode is, in fact, X-Men comics. I was at college when Lulu was at home, but I still managed to sneak in a lot of X-Men comics in between my Zoom classes, so I'm also really excited to talk about this. Both of us, like, have been fans of Marvel comics for a while because I read some growing up a couple years ago and I recently got back into it during quarantine just because I really needed something to fill the time. So I just decided that I was going to read a ton of X-Men comics while I was at home and kind of like earn my nerd cred by finally understanding what was going on with that franchise. And you kept telling me about all these really good comics and I'd been so out of the loop that I totally missed like entire runs of comics featuring characters that I really liked. So it was really fun to get back into them and have something to read that took a little less brain power than like an entire book. It was, it was definitely something that wouldn't have happened unless there was a pandemic happening because like my access to going to libraries is also really limited. So I started taking advantage of a lot of library ebook services like Hoopla or Overdrive, which happened to have a lot of comics. So I just ended up reading like a ridiculous amount of Marvel comics on my computer and have a lot of thoughts on them. So I figured we would maybe just talk about some ones that we've read recently and our overall thoughts on the X-Men franchise and where it's going because it's in kind of an interesting era right now. Sounds like a plan to me. So way back in the days of yore, AK probably like 2015, was I think when I first got into Marvel Comics because like a lot of people, I watched the Marvel movies and I was like, I'd like to see where these came from. So I like went to the library and picked up the first comic that had number one on the back because I figured that would be a good starting place. But unfortunately, it was House of M by Brian Michael Bendis. Anyone who knows anything about Marvel Comics knows that that is not a great place to start because it's actually an AU comic where everyone goes and lives in an alternate universe and suffice to say it was not a good starting place. So then I was like okay that wasn't quite what I was looking for because that was like a really mind-bending reality warping massive crossover event where nothing is the way it usually is in the regular comics universe. So I went back to the library and I got the next comic that had number one in the back. And that turned out to be the Yost run of X-Force, which is famously violent and features like a lot of death and gore and blood. And it was not the greatest second comic for like a 14 year old. I remember it being rather off-putting. I had honestly forgotten that I had read it until pretty recently when I was reading another comic that referenced the concept of X-Force and I was like, oh my god, I remember reading that comic and I blocked most of it from my brain. So then, third time's charm, I went back to the library and I got X-Men Season 1 by Dennis Hopeless, 
which is basically a retelling of like the Silver Age, very early X-Men comics, but kind of with updated art and writing that makes them actually sound like teenagers. And that's really my context for the early X-Men stuff, but I enjoyed it. But I feel like X-Men comics are really hard to get into because there are all these different teams and all these different characters and crossovers and alternate universes and so much going on all the time that I didn't really read much more for the next couple of years and just kind of stuck with other shorter series. I think the longest running X-Men comic that I read back in middle school was the all new X-Men series by Brad Michael Bendis. And even though that's the start of a completely new series, it does kind of rely on prior knowledge of the franchise because the premise is that the older X-Men travel back in time and bring their teenage selves forward to the present day. So you kind of need to know who's who and what's up with everyone. So X-Men comics don't always have a really great starting place if you're completely unfamiliar with the characters. And we both had to kind of work to try to understand what the best place to start was and who all these people were and what was going on. But once we managed to get into the franchise, it was really entertaining and rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I was stuck at home. I was kind of bored. I didn't have classes to fill my time and like I was doing an internship and that was about it. So I had gone back and reread comics that I was into when I was a lot younger because still owned them like Young Avengers, which we did an entire episode on. And a number of the characters in Young Avengers have ties to X-Men comics, which sort of ended up being my entryway point into the franchise. So I just kind of went around reading various things that seemed interesting and following certain writers or characters, which I feel like ended up being an okay entry point. But I think there is definitely a certain amount of just like being able to read something without entirely understanding who a character is or what's going on that you need to have in order to be able to read X-Men comics. But I figured now that we both have read several decades of comics rather intensely for the past couple of months, it might be fun to sort of talk about the highlights of stuff we read and what we ended up enjoying and the characters we liked and the certain comic runs that we thought really stood out. So I guess we'll start off with that. Sounds good to me. So the first comic run that we're going to talk about is the Astonishing X-Men run by Marjorie Liu, which ran from 2012 to 2013. The most famous run of this series is actually the 2004 one by Joss Whedon, but we are emphatically not here to talk about Joss Whedon or his comic run. Instead, we're going to focus on Marjorie Liu's time on the title. So she took over this comic, which was pretty long running near the tail end of it, and wrote it from 2012 to 2013. The art starts off being by Mike Perkins, and then later on is by Gabriel Walta. It's most famous probably for being the comic series that featured Marvel's first gay wedding, which was between the Canadian mutant and X-Men character Northstar and his human partner Kyle. I used to see this advertised in the back of other comics when I would get them from the library, but I just never got around to reading it until now. But I decided to do it because it featured a number of characters that I was interested in. North Star's Wedding was a big event, and I remember hearing about it when I got into comics because it was only a few years after that happened, but I never actually read the series that it was in until now. Well, I also had zero idea who North Star was, but I think it was a big deal because it was in 2012, so this was before gay marriage was legal in all 50 states in America, so it was Marvel being like, we are supportive of gay marriage, we're going to have one of our characters get married. But actually, a lot happens in this series other than that. I think it has some really good stuff in it besides just the issue with North Star's wedding. The reason that I like this run so much is that I feel like it really emphasizes that the X-Men are not just a team, but also a family. Because in this comic series, they might travel the multiverse and fight supervillains and stop the apocalypse, but they also attend weddings, adopt kittens, and do karaoke. And it just really has a lot of great character dynamics and great character interactions. And I think that's what's so good about it because Marjorie Liu really gets that these characters care about each other a lot they have a long history of working together and fighting by each other's sides. I also feel like I like this series because it sort of shines a spotlight 
on like less prominent characters who are part of the X-Men because if you think about X-Men comics or movies they're like okay like Magneto and Professor X rivalry like Cyclops, Jean Grey, Wolverine, blah 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 like all the characters that people know from like the big comics or the movies but I feel like this has a lineup of characters who are sort of often less given the spotlight like North Star or Karma or even Iceman, who often is sort of like a comic relief character. So it's sort of fun that she takes a bunch of characters who are not necessarily always put center stage, but sort of gives them their time on a comic run, which I enjoyed. Also, it has a really high percentage of gay characters on the team because it features Northstar, who's gay, Karma, who's a lesbian, and Iceman, who's gay, although he wasn't out at the time that this was written. It also features Gambit, but Marvel won't confirm him as bi because they're cowards. Everyone who reads comics with Gambit in them knows that he is bi, and yet Marvel continues to pretend he is not. Yeah, but anyway, I really liked that because the X-Men are one huge metaphor for minorities, and I think it's really important that the characters have intersectional and diverse identities, like Karma being a Vietnamese lesbian, or Iceman being gay, or Northstar also being gay, and I think it's really important to the metaphor of the X-Men. They're not just mutants, they're also people of color and gay people and disabled people and immigrants and stuff like that. Right, because like the whole deal is that because they're born with these superpowers, people hate and fear them and different writers have different takes on why that is, but I feel like the interpretation that humans are afraid of the X-Men because they're the next stage of evolution and they're afraid of being replaced by them, so that kind of leads to people hating and fearing and discriminating against them then means that writers can sort of use this mutant metaphor as an allegory for like any type of marginalized group, like disabled people or gay people or trans people or people of color or immigrants. But like, it's not a very strong metaphor if you're talking about a bunch of straight white people running around oppressed because they can fly and stuff. But Astonishing X-Men has characters who are actual marginalized identities. So like Karma is a mutant, but she's also a disabled Vietnamese lesbian. And that makes the metaphor stronger and more interesting. And I feel like not all the X-Men comics that are popular do this particularly well, but I liked that this put characters who aren't straight white people at the forefront because it makes the metaphor work better. Also, I just really enjoy that these characters got to have the spotlight because I really enjoy, for example, Northstar. He's kind of a grouchy speedster who's a little mean sometimes, but he actually cares a lot about his friends. But aside from being one of the first prominent gay characters at Marvel. He's not hugely popular and he hasn't been in like a lot of really popular long-running comics. So I really liked that in this series he kind of got the spotlight and got to be a hero but also have some emotional development and stuff like that. Yeah, I like him as a character. This is my introduction to him because I think he was in an earlier comic series called Alpha Flight that I have read nothing of really. But I enjoyed him in this because he's sort of speedy and a little bit mean. But he's also like cares about people, which I think is kind of fun. I like characters who are a little bit mean, but also kind of protective of people they love. Yeah, or for example, Karma is a founding member of the popular X-Men group, The New Mutants, but she hasn't always gotten a spotlight. She hasn't always gotten a lot of focus as a character. And I think Marjorie Liu was actually the first Asian writer to write Karma. So I really liked that she's a pretty central figure in this comic series and she gets a lot of focus. You get to meet her family, learn more about her history, about her life, about what she thinks of her time on the X-Men. And I really liked that because Karma is an interesting character and there's a lot of depth to her, but she doesn't always get the development or time in the spotlight that I think she deserves. 
Yeah, like I've been reading the classic New Mutants comic by Chris Claremont recently, and she gets written out like really early on and then gets like possessed by a supervillain and then she comes back, but she never like does as much as a lot of the other characters. So it's kind of nice to see her have a central role in a comic like this because I think she's an interesting character, but she's definitely never been an A-lister. Also, like we said, this comic features the first gay wedding in Marvel Comics, and it's not just the single issue of Kyle and Northstar getting married, because they're both characters throughout the entire run. They're in the whole series by Marjorie Liu, and I thought it was really nice that a gay relationship is the most prominent romantic relationship in the comic series, and Kyle and Northstar are also both interesting characters, and I think Marjorie Liu does a really good job of developing the conflict in their relationship that comes from Northstar being a mutant superhero and his partner Kyle being a regular human civilian with like a job in PR and the kind of conflicts that would come with that but the way that they try to ground each other and come back to each other despite the difficulties of that. Yeah I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't think Kyle has really featured in much stuff after this mostly because Northstar has barely been in anything so people are like unlikely to give his non-superhero civilian husband much character development but I do think it's interesting because there aren't like that many relationships in Marvel that are between a civilian and a superhero maybe like Spider-Man and Mary Jane but it's it's sort of interesting because it sort of looks at everyday side of that like what does it mean if you're in a relationship with someone who's always busy running around saving the world I think it can be tricky to do a superhero civilian relationship because you have to give the civilian character something to do in order for them to be interesting in the long run. And I think Marjorie Liu succeeds at that in this series because Kyle kind of has to deal with supervillains, keep trying to kidnap him because of his husband, and his husband just went over to another continent to fight some supervillains. He has to like deal with not knowing he's going to come home. So I think Marjorie Liu definitely focuses on Kyle, even if other comic series don't. It did feel like so fast though, because the way that it's set up is that their relationship is having problems because it's difficult if you're a civilian dating a superhero and Northstar's like, well, obviously the way to solve this problem is to propose to Kyle and then Kyle turns him down. But then they literally like solve their issues and get married on the next issue. And I was like, okay, that felt a little rushed. I kind of wonder, like I was looking at the publication dates for these issues And the wedding issue came out in June, which is Pride Month. And I sort of wonder if they sort of rushed that through so they could be like, it's June, it's Pride Month, our gay superhero is getting married. But then once you read it later, you're like, that was kind of fast. A couple more issues of them sorting through their issues wouldn't have hurt. But like, I kind of wonder if some exec at Marvel like called Marjorie Lope and was like, ring, ring, it's almost Pride Month. Can you cook something up for a gay token hero for him to like do something for once? because it just felt like really fast. I was like, okay, like I know you have super speed, but let's slow down a little. Yeah, it is really sudden. I like Kyle and Northstar in the beginning issues of this comic series. Like they're moving in together and there's a funny part where Kyle keeps trying to get Northstar to use his super speed to unpack their kitchen really quickly. But it is true that the trajectory of their engagement goes like Northstar proposes to Kyle, Kyle says no, in the next issue he changes his mind, and the issue after that they get married. I think it may have been because they wanted the comic issue to come out in June. But like who am I to speculate about the Marvel execs? Actually I do that all the time, that's not fair. No, yeah. (laughs) When you're reading comics, it's sort of funny because you're like, okay, there's like what the writers want to do. And then there's what the higher ups at Marvel want them to do. And I'm always like, is this a choice that the writer wanted? Or is this a choice that an editor or something suggested? Which is sort of something interesting you don't necessarily have to think about when you're reading books because you just have someone writes a book, they edit it, their editor gives them feedback. But like with something like a comic that's owned by a huge franchise like Marvel, 
they're working in this larger universe. So I guess writers have to be aware of the repercussions of their decisions and whether that's allowed, which does lead to some interesting stuff where I'm like, would Marjorie Liu have written more issues if these characters having relationship issues and working them out? Or did someone tell her like, hey, could you speed things up a little bit? Like, I don't know. Well, either way, they did get married. And I actually do like the issue where it happens. It's really nice because like everyone gets together and they have like a big party and they get married and no evil people attack the wedding until after the vows happen, which is sometimes kind of rare in superhero comics. I feel like my only two bones that I have to pick with the actual wedding issue is that one, I, I don't really like the art because I feel like the artist can't draw people smiling that well. And there's like so much smiling in this issue because it's a wedding but it just doesn't look quite natural. And two, I personally do not think Beast should have been the one to hold this marriage. He does not, he does not deserve that. <laughs> I he don't really like doesn't. Isn't he even friends with North Star? Do they even know each other? It's worse because also in like the early 2000s, at one point Beast faked coming out as gay. And I was like, so now you're going to officiate a wedding after doing that? Okay. Oh yeah, I heard about that. Well, you know, our negative opinions on Beast aside, it is a nice issue. And even though some supervillains attack at the end, everyone still gets to have fun at a party and hang out first. I'm a big fan of superheroes hanging out and having a good time together, which this series contains a lot of. Like they literally go out to karaoke at one point and it's just everything that I've ever wanted in a comic actually. I know, that was such a nice issue. Oh, there's also that one issue where like Gambit is just hanging out in his apartment and the supervillain Mystique comes by and he's just like sitting on his bed eating cake and then she dumps like three kittens on him and that's just very good content. Yeah, well, because she rescued them from another supervillain because she was like, I don't want you to eat these kittens. They're perfectly nice cats and just gives them to Gambit and he's just had cats ever since. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. I love that Marjorie Lou was like, you know what would improve Gambit as a character if I gave him cats? And she was correct. It's beautiful. Oh, another character who's interesting in this series isn't technically an X-Men. He's the Shi'ar alien Warbird, who has this really interesting arc about unlearning her super violent and oppressive society who like doesn't believe in gay marriage or people being artists or like expressing yourself and so Warbot has a really good arc about becoming friends with the X-Men specifically Karma and I personally firmly believe that Karma and Warbird were girlfriends even if it was not confirmed by the end of the series. Okay but literally I, I do also believe that because I know Warbird sucks at the start of the series and she turns up to North Star's wedding to be like I don't approve of this but her whole character arc is basically about how the alien society that she comes from, the Shi'ar, are super oppressive and don't believe in people being artists and like they just believe in like warrior culture and it's really intense but she's now on earth and she has to kind of learn who she is and unlearn the beliefs that the Shi'ar have taught her and like that's partially through her friendship with Karma and by the end I was like so Karma's dating the alien warrior right? Like I'm not reading into this am I? It definitely felt like they were dating. Also if you don't want to interpret her as homophobic I do believe at an earlier point she'd said that the Shi'ar don't approve of marriages between warriors and civilians, which is technically what Kyle Northstar's marriage was. So like, maybe she was talking about that. I don't know. The point being that, yes, I know Warbird kind of sucked at the start, but she got better. She really did. One of the other really good plot lines in this series is the one about Iceman. Do you want to talk about that, Lulu? Because it gave you a lot of feelings. Oh yeah, I really think the story with Iceman is interesting in this comic because he is a member of the original five X-Men, which is like Angel... Cyclops, Jean Grey, Beast, and... And Iceman. Iceman. I forgot him for a second. I'm sorry. I was like, did I say that already? Why do I only have four fingers up? Uh Um, Anyway, so he's like one of the original five, but hasn't like had as much to do. Like Cyclops is the team leader. And like Jean Grey had the Dark Phoenix saga and like Angel becomes a supervillain occasionally. And Beast is like the science guy. But Iceman's whole thing is sort of 
being kind of like the younger brother to the team, like being kind of a comic relief and the guy cracks jokes a lot is the role that I've read him in. But this comic sort of shines a light on the darker, more intense parts of him because he gets infected with this thing called the apocalypse seed that kind of turns him into a supervillain for a while. And he almost causes this like snow apocalypse, but it really reads like this whole character arc about internalized homophobia because Iceman was for a really long time written as having relationships with women. It wasn't like necessarily supposed to be anything other than heterosexual on the page. But in 2015, they had his character come out and be like, actually, I'm gay. Like, I've only been in with women because I've been like hiding who I am, which I think is a really interesting take for an X-Men character because you can so often read them being mutants as being a metaphor for being gay, like really obviously. So I think it worked for his character. But this is before that, but it still really strongly reads like part of that character arc where he's going to come out as gay later. As someone who's read Iceman in some older comics prior to him coming out besides this one, I think you can definitely read him as subtextually gay. So when he when they did have him come out, it definitely wasn't coming out of nowhere. And I think the storyline really feeds into that. As Lulu said, it's really interesting because Bobby doesn't always get a lot of like character development or emotional moments because he's kind of the annoying comedic relief character and sometimes he throws snowballs at villains but in this case it kind of got a lot darker and I thought that worked really well. Right because it's not just that he gets infected with this thing called the apocalypse seed that kind of turns him into this giant icy supervillain but it's like he runs into all his ex-girlfriends and he has this crisis about he craves love but he's afraid to be truly vulnerable and then he realizes that a lot of that stems from his parents inability to accept him and then like he basically almost loses it because he's infected with this evil apocalypse seed thing but like he sort of eventually comes down from that and then he becomes friends with North Star who is openly gay and then it's just a really interesting character arc because he doesn't actually come out as gay and you're not supposed to think he's like anything but straight during it because it's really supposed to be about a character who's always sort of been the funny one or the one who's never gotten a lot of focus kind of cracking and being like actually I have a lot of deep inner turmoil that comes from the fact that my parents are fundamentally unable to accept who I am because I'm a mutant, but it like really reads as someone who is struggling with internalized homophobia, especially in hindsight of him coming out as gay a couple years later. And there's like a lot of conversations throughout where it'll cut between what's happening and like the scene that we think is him talking to a therapist, but then it turns out the therapist is actually sort of a projection of himself. And they have all these conversations about how he craves intimacy, but intimacy requires vulnerability. And then like the character will say, and being vulnerable is the one thing you fear most. Or we'll say something like, so what do you want? Or can you even answer that question? Can you even allow yourself to ask that? Or when he turns into this like giant icy supervillain monster, like the narration will say, grow as big as you want, swallow up this whole world, but you still won't be able to run from yourself. So it becomes this interesting story about how he sort of cracks because he's been infected with this supervillain thing that causes his powers to go out of control and him to lose control and cause this like giant snow apocalypse thing but it's also kind of a story about something that you've been hiding from yourself bubbling up and finally stop being repressed and like it just really strongly reads like he's gay and in the closet it's wild how much it reads like that it's a really good arc I finished this arc and I was like wait I care about Bobby Drake now because I hadn't read a lot of comics that he was in where he had any depth besides being the joking one but this one was so much more serious and you've got like much more of a sense of what's going on with Bobby under the surface of being the funny one and I really liked that. Also I think Bobby does read a lot as a character even prior to coming out. He's a character who you can very easily use as the mutant metaphor as a metaphor for being gay because unlike say 
beast who's blue and furry. Bobby doesn't visibly look like a mutant, so he has to like come out as the mutant to various people, and his parents really don't accept that about him, so it very strongly reads as a metaphor for someone who comes out to his parents as gay and isn't accepted about that, so then when you add in the fact that he is gay, it's a really interesting piece of character work. Right, and I think Marjorie Lou has said that she had that interpretation of Bobby as someone who is gay but is in the closet and struggling with that in mind when she was writing this. I've heard rumors that she like actually wanted him to come out as gay during this arc, but I don't know if it's like actually true because she would have been shot down if that's the case. But I think it's just a really interesting character arc because the general idea of the character who's just sort of seen as like the jokester having lots of like depth and internal turmoil is really interesting. But the way that it really fits into later developments to the character and the way that if you look back on it through that light, you're like, oh, this makes sense in like a really obvious way actually is really interesting. And also Walta's art is really good because there's so many scenes of like ice and like the apocalypse and Bobby being this like giant spiky ice monster that's really well done. But like, it's just so interesting. Like I think about this specific comic arc like all the time. It was just so much. Basically, Marjorie Liu's Astonishing X-Men run is almost 10 years old at this point, but I think it's held up really, really well, and I think it will continue to hold up well for a long time in the future, just because the character work in it is so good, and it's not just about the X-Men fighting bad guys, they have, like, emotional vulnerability and relationship problems, and they're a family, and I think that's what's so good about it and why I enjoyed it so much. Exactly, yeah, like, they fight bad guys, but the heart of the story is really about them as people and how they grow and how they change and how they connect with each other, which I think is what makes it such a strong story. How about we go on to another X-Men comic that's about fighting bad guys, but also emotions and family. So another comic that we both read and enjoyed during the pandemic was All New Wolverine by Tom Taylor, which ran from 2015 to 2018. And it's not about the Wolverine you're probably thinking of, the guy with the sideburns who's in all the movies and played by Hugh Jackman. It's actually about his female clone, Laura Kinney, who is a young girl who was kind of cloned and built from Wolverine's DNA and raised in a lab. So she has all of his powers, but was raised essentially as a child assassin and escaped and is a member of the X-Men. And it's a series sort of following her on some solo adventures and dealing with her past as a dark assassin and kind of making new friends and new connections. Also, an important thing to know about this series is that the original Wolverine, at the time it takes place, is dead. It doesn't stick, but they had the big, like, the death of Wolverine event. And in the wake of him being dead, Laura has taken up his mantle as a superhero. She was originally raised as an assassin called X-23, and that's the name that she went by for a lot of her first appearances in comics. But in this run, she's actually going by the codename Wolverine, has basically taken up her adoptive dad's mantle as a hero rather than an assassin. Laura is very near and very dear to both of our hearts because she is one of the first X-Men characters whose origins we actually understand because our local library happened to have X-23 Innocent Lost, which is sort of the origin story comic for Laura. So therefore we've always had like a decent understanding of her origins and who she is. And you can actually understand how she's developing as a character, compare that to her early iterations. Like she has a solo series by Marjorie Liu that Pi has read. Yeah, it's an excellent series. We're not going to talk about it because Lulu hasn't read it yet, but Marjorie Lou does some great character work in that as well. So All New Wolverine is sort of a more lighthearted story for Laura. She's often a character who's dealt with some pretty dark stuff because she was a child assassin and 
has struggled with like whether the fact that she's a clone means she's even a real person. But All New Wolverine is sort of a much more lighthearted take on the character. She's just kind of going on adventures and saving the day. And a lot of the story revolves around the fact that she discovers that not only is she a clone, she has clones, including a young girl named Gabby Kinney, who she sort of adopts and raises as a sister. In this house, we love Gabby Kinney very, very much. Gabby is just the best. She's so sweet. She's like 13 or 14 in the first volume. And she's also been through some pretty dark stuff like Laura, but she's also just like a weird little kid who's an absolute ray of sunshine. And she kind of represents Laura's lost innocence. So Laura's like very protective of her. And it's just a really lovely dynamic because you kind of get to see Laura basically giving Gabby the childhood that she didn't have while also still being a superhero who goes on adventures and like seeks out vengeance and stops bad guys. They're kind of opposing characters because Gabby was also raised as a cloned weapon as a child, but she had older clone sisters who kind of shielded her from the worst of what was going on in their lives growing up. So unlike Laura, she still has a lot of innocence and like a sense of humor and kind of a belief in the goodness of the world. And she keeps throughout throughout the whole run and even kind of manages to make Laura a little bit more optimistic and lighthearted sometimes. And it's a really good character dynamic. This series has like a lot of themes of healing and moving on from dark pasts and letting go of guilt over things you were forced to do, which I really love for Laura because she was forced to do all these terrible things as a child and still feels a lot of guilt about them and still has a lot of people who hate her for what she did, even though she didn't have control of her actions. So a lot of the series kind of continues the theme of her confronting her past and working through it while also like forging ahead and creating a new identity. Also, like Astonishing X-Men, All New Wolverine has a lot of themes of family because the original Wolverine, Logan Howlett, might be dead, but there are a lot of people related to him running around in Marvel Comics because there's Laura, and there's Gabby, and there's their pet Wolverine, Jonathan, who was given to them by Squirrel Girl, who mistakenly assumed that Wolverine could talk to Wolverines. And then there's also Old Man Logan, who's an alternate version of the original Wolverine from another world. And then there's Akihiro, the original Wolverine's sort of evil son who's kind of been getting a redemption arc in the last few years of comics. So there's a lot of stuff about family and these kids who are all united by having knives in their hands, having a bit of bonding time and getting to know each other. Akihiro is a complicated character with a lot of naughty past, and that is naughty as in K-N-O-T-T-Y, though he also has like probably naughty past in the other sense as well. But he's just a character that like You read his Wikipedia page and you go like, yikes. And then you keep reading, you go, yikes, again. But he's sort of been, I don't know, I think writers have been kind of trying to write him better and rehabilitate him a little bit lately. And I I do think this series has an interesting take on him as someone who has been irredeemably bad and has worked as kind of a foil for his father who is a superhero. He's sort of the supervillain equivalent, but is trying to become a better person. And his connection with his sister is sort of a pathway towards redemption. So I found that rather interesting, even if he's definitely kind of a character with a difficult past. Yeah, the thing about Akihiro is that he's half Japanese and also bisexual and also a villain, which means that he's been the victim of a lot of like bad, offensive writing in the past. But I think this series has a good interpretation of him because he's still kind of a bad person, but he's also like suddenly gained these two random younger sisters and was like, well, maybe I should become a little bit better so I can hang out with them. And I really like that. Yeah, I kind of like that this series is Akihiro being forcibly assigned the role of older brother and being like, oh my God, okay, I'll become a slightly better person for them. Okay, I'm doing it. It's delightful. Also, like the original Wolverine, Akihiro is really old. He's like 
70, but he's basically immortal, so he looks like he's 20-something, whereas Laura and Gabby are like 20 and 14, respectively. So the fact that he's been around for so many decades and suddenly has two younger sisters is really funny to me. Wolverine has so many kids. Like, that man has like single-handedly populated half of the Marvel Universe, I swear to God. I know, but I really enjoy all his kids' interactions. I don't mind. Yeah, I like when people call them the snicked family because, like, the sound effect that a lot of comics draw out as the sound of their claws coming out of their hands is snicked and, like, bonds all of them. (laughs) It's really cute. So besides having solo adventures like meeting the Guardians of the Galaxy or fighting sea monsters, Laura also deals a lot with her own dark past in All New Wolverine. There's a lot of plot lines about stuff that she did as an assassin that's come back to haunt her. Like, there's a really good plot line about the trigger scent, which was this thing engineered in a lab that they used when Laura was a child assassin, where if they'll infect someone with a certain scent, she'll kind of like go into a berserker rage and kill them as an assurance that their child soldier will definitely kill someone, which is really terrible. But this arc is kind of about how Laura learns to overcome it and learns to stop feeling guilt about the way that she was forced to do these really horrible things as a child when she had no way to escape or say no. And there's also a great arc called Orphans of X about all these people who have banded together because they're the brothers and sisters and parents and friends of the victims of people that Laura has killed and they blame her for what she's done and she gives this really good speech about how she was a kid who was engineered by people who didn't see her as a person and that she refuses to feel guilty for the things they made her do because she spent so much time feeling all this self-hatred and anger about her past but she's learned that she kind of has to let go of it and that she refuses to let other people blame her for what she was forced to do and it made me have a lot of emotions that specific arc in this series was really good because one of my favorite tropes in media is a character who has been raised as a living weapon or a soldier sort of gaining agency and independence and experiencing love and emotion and human connection which is really what laura is all about she's a character who will not be what she was made to be, but still struggles with her dark past. And this series definitely has a lot with that because she's moved on. She is fighting bad guys instead of killing good guys. And she has agency and family and friends and a boyfriend, but she still is confronting the really dark parts of her backstory. And when the trigger sent plotline kind of comes back and she has to learn how to overcome that, there's kind of this bit where Jean Grey, who is like a master telepath, sort of goes into Laura's brain and kind of helps her overcome the trigger scent. And there's just a flashback to Laura as a really young child who's sort of escaped into like the darkest parts of her brain because she like hates what she's being forced to do. Honestly, I do not cry over things, but I actually did cry over that character arc, which is wild. Like I do not cry over media, but I actually did cry over this, which is wild. I've been attached to her as a character since I was like 14. So it's very satisfying to read about her like having good things happen to her and sort of reckoning with her past and overcoming that and just made me very emotional. I know it's just a really strong series overall and I really loved that Laura gets to have the center stage. She's not just the female Wolverine, she is Wolverine and even in recent comics she's still going by that code name. There's actually a comic that came out recently where someone tries to call her X-23 and she's like actually I'm Wolverine and Logan is just like you tell him kiddo and it was really satisfying. That was really satisfying. I would like it if Akihiro maybe dropped his code name because we've been calling him Akihiro, but he has another code name that like it means mongrel in Japanese, which just feels kind of weird because it's supposed to be like about how he's biracial, but 
I feel like I always feel kind of weird reading comics by white comic writers who call them that. And I think it would be nice if he maybe dropped that as well. But I do like that Laura has kind of dropped her X-23 name and is just going solely by Wolverine because they called her X-23 because that was what they called her when she was a lab experiment. And even though it was something that she used for a while and it was kind of a branding thing to differentiate her from Wolverine, I like that she's been able to drop that and like that part of her past and be like, I am not the thing that I was made to be. I'm not X-23, I'm Wolverine. And I'm kind of satisfied that that is like something that's continuing on in some modern comics because I know it's a little confusing to have two Wolverines running around, but it's much more narratively satisfying for Laura to have permanently dropped that name and be like, I have moved on from that. I'm not X-23. So I'm kind of glad that they've kept her being Wolverine even after this ends. Me too. And it would just feel weird for her to go back to being X-23 because the series ran for six volumes and it was hugely popular when it was coming out as it would have to be because it ran for so long. And Laura went by the name Wolverine for the whole thing while she had her heroic adventure and was like a member of the X-Men and a hero. So it would just feel kind of wrong for her to go back to X-23. It would feel kind of like a character regression and kind of ignoring all the things that she went through and dealt with in this series. But so far she hasn't really done that. So I'm glad about that. We also read House of X and Powers of Ten, also known as Hawks Pox, if you like acronyms. I do like acronyms. It is very satisfying to say. Anyway, Hawks Pox is a miniseries by Jonathan Hickman, sort of actually two comics bound up in one, but it's basically the big changing the status quo comics for the current era of X-Men. And I thought it was kind of interesting. It's definitely paved the way for like a very different era of X-Men comics. So I guess I'll talk about that a little bit. The basic premise is that A woman named Moira McTaggart, who has traditionally been written as a human ally to mutants, like she's a scientist who cares about mutants but isn't one herself, even though she has connections to them, is revealed to actually be a mutant. And her power is that she dies and lives her life over and over while retaining her memories of the previous life. If you've read The First 15 Lies of Harry August by Claire North, it's basically like that. That's a very good book. I would recommend it. Not particularly related to X-Men comics, but it deals with like the same concept. I will remember that. Anyway, so Moira has been living her lives over and over again, and in every life she sees failure because basically the X-Men's whole deal is that there's Professor X who is kind of an assimilationist and thinks that humans and mutants can live side by side, and he runs a school for mutants and is like the good guy and is peaceful mostly. And then there's Magneto who's kind of like a more radical separatist and is I have seen how bad humans can be. I'm a survivor of the Holocaust and I'm Jewish and I don't want the, like, the next thing to happen to mutants to be like that. And a lot of it is sort of around like their conflict. I feel like the movies definitely play that up, but actually Professor X is dead in the comics a lot, probably because if you have someone who can save the day by like thinking really hard, it's sort of not fun to write stories. So they kill them off a lot. But anyway, the point being, so much of X-Men comics is around this idea of these two characters not getting along and this sort of eternal struggle to find where mutants belong and like if they can live side by side with humans. And Moira has been living her life over and over again and has done different things each time. And each time it's just resulted in failure. So now she's like, we need to take the biggest step that we've never done before. And basically we all need to get along or we're all gonna die. And we all have to like go live on an island together and create an independent nation state for mutants. So they go find this place called Krakoa that's actually like a mutant itself. And basically the X-Men established a sovereign nation state that they want to be recognized by the UN and all X-Men are welcome to come live there, but it's not really a place for humans. And Professor X and Magneto are getting along. And that's like the the basic premise of the current era of comics. To clarify, Krakoa is 
an island, but it's also kind of alive. So the mutants came and were like, hey, Krakoa, can we live on you? And Krakoa was like, okay. Then they founded a whole state there. And I found this miniseries really interesting because Moira McTaggart is not a character that I have read a ton of because she's usually not a central figure in X-Men comics because she's more of an ally than an actual member of the team. But her whole thing is that she has been a human being and now it's actually been retconned that she's a mutant but it's not the kind of retcon that's like Moira can breathe fire and she's been able to do this all the time and she just hasn't brought it up it's that she's been living her lives over and over again in an attempt to find a way for the mutants to survive and thrive and she's lived all these lifetimes and none of them have worked the mutants have always ended up oppressed or dead in some way and so this kind of like last ditch attempt is for her to recruit Professor X and Magneto, who are traditionally villains, and try to create this mutant state and have it be powerful enough that they can't be taken down by outside forces. And it's really fascinating because Krakoa also has some really interesting rules. Like every mutant is granted amnesty when they go to live on Krakoa, even if you're a former supervillain, even if you tried to kill the X-Men like 60 times, as long as you swear to obey the laws of Krakoa, which are like, kill no human, respect this land, and make more mutants, then you can just go live there. And another conceit of the Krakoa era is that mutants can now be brought back to life. It's kind of a complicated process that involves brain backups and cloning, but basically death isn't permanent and everyone can be resurrected. And so it's created this whole new era of comics about nation building and a mutant society and what all these new mutants are doing on this island together. And it's really fun because it kind of feels like all the toys are in the sandbox right now and the writers can do anything they want. Like, for example, if a writer is really fond of an obscure character from 1985 who died in their first appearance and they want to bring them back, they can just do it. They don't have to come up with a complicated explanation why they're not dead. They can just be like, well, they brought him back to life. The X-Men have also tried the like living on an island thing before and it's gone really badly. They tried living on Genosha, they tried living on Utopia and ended badly both times. But this is more of like a franchise-wide event that like they're really pushing and I think will maybe last a little bit longer than that. Though the funniest thing so far is that I was talking to Pi about how I was wondering if Krakoa is like inherently doomed and I was like yeah it kind of sounds like they're gonna either like blow up or like someone's gonna drop it in the ocean and there's gonna be a tsunami or there's gonna be a plague or something and you were like well Krakoa is a real place and it is a volcano right and I was like no pie that's Krakatoa. In my defense I don't know why they named this island a name that is so similar to an actual real island. Anyway, the point being that Krakoa is a fictional place and Krakatoa is a real place. Hopefully Krakoa won't blow up, but I guess it's a possibility. Yeah. I, I do feel that I'm sure that the Krakoa era will come to an end at some point, but it's been going steadily since like 2019 and the comic series that have been running out of it are really popular, so it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. I do find it interesting, especially that Professor X and Magneto are getting along because so much of it is like they're the two rivals and they represent the two different takes on mutants and instead they're getting along and they've sort of found a compromise. I think there's definitely parts of Krakoa that you're supposed to find questionable because it's sort of a series about how building a whole new country is not necessarily easy but I, I do think it would be interesting if it kept going for a while and they like reevaluated their leadership and like tried new things because it, it's just very different from things that have gone before. It's not just like we're the X-Men, we save the world, we have a school, Magneto is our bad guy. It's just like completely different from stuff that's come before, which is definitely full of possibilities. Also, I think it's really fun that everyone is living in the same place now, because in a lot of previous X-Men comics, it's like, 
they got the school in New York, and then they got like a branch in California, and then there's people going doing things in England. In this case, they all live on the same island, and there are a bunch of comic series that are all running at the same time. So you get a lot of fun crossover events. Characters will turn up in each other's books, and I think it's really fun, and it kind of makes everything feel very interconnected in a way that comics aren't always. I sort of feel like there is a big ticking clock on Krakoa. I don't think it's necessarily going to like explode and I don't think everyone's going to die in the next six months. But I think a lot of the comics have been building towards some very big real problems, especially involving the villain amnesty, which I think could be interesting to explore. Because if you have a bunch of supervillains on your island and even helping run your island, things are not going to go smoothly. And I feel like there's definitely parts of Krakoa that are supposed to be like, questionable and I'm curious if it's going to end up with we're just going to burn the island down and go back to the way it was or if they're going to like reevaluate the status quo and just change some stuff but keep the island it's interesting and I'm very intrigued to see where it goes I guess yeah I'm really curious where they're going to bring Krakoa in the next few years because I hope it keeps running for a while just because I think most of the comics in the current era are really fun and unique and they feel fresh but it is true that there's definitely a lot of like boiling tensions on the island. Personally, I think that anyone who's invited Sebastian Shaw and Mr. Sinister to be a part of their government maybe needs to reevaluate what kind of government they want to make, but maybe they'll be doing that in the future. Who knows? Also, another important update from this era is that Wolverine and Cyclops are like definitely dating. And I am not exaggerating. Oh, for sure. Because they've always had a contentious relationship because Wolverine is sort of like the bad boy who doesn't follow rules and has a dark past. And Cyclops is like the team leader who is sort of a stickler for rules. But they also both sort of have like this push-pull thing going on with Jean Grey, which I think they really played up in the movies, which I have not seen again, but like- They really did, yeah. I've seen more movies than you have, and it's like a full-on love triangle. Right, so there's like this whole thing where in the original old comics, Jean and Scott get together, but then Jean dies, but then it turns out she's not really dead. But while she's dead, Scott marries a woman who turns out to be your evil clone. And then eventually the clone dies and he marries Jean and they get back together again. But then their relationship is like totally on the rocks in the 2010s and he has an affair. And then Jean dies. Then Jean gives Scott her blessing to like be with another woman. And he does that for a while. And like Jean and Scott sort of trade off turns being dead for a while but like now they're both alive again and both back together but it's also like really heavily implied they're in a polyamorous relationship with Wolverine which is sort of an interesting way to solve that love triangle and like I guess there's also sort of implication that because they're building a whole new society there's sort of different norms regarding like love and marriage and relationships and that might be one of them it's mostly just heavily hinted at but I'm like I can read and I can look at pictures and I think I know what's going on here (laughs) Yeah, it's not like we've never seen Jean, Scott, and Logan like on a date night or like making out at a bar or anything, but they all do live together in a house that is mostly reserved for Scott Summers' immediate family. And there are definitely some interactions where they just all seem to be hanging out together and getting along much better than Scott and Logan have in the past. So it's definitely the implication. I think it's kind of interesting because I feel like the Wolverine, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Love Triangle has been going for a while and it's been getting a little tired. So it's kind of interesting to see that they've done something else with it. Although I don't know they'll ever like make it canon that Scott and Logan are bi just because Marvel doesn't like to do that kind of thing and rock the boat. There's definitely a lot of charged moments between them, but I think you could ignore it if you wanted to and you were boring. But I do find it kind of interesting. It's sort of uh, maybe emblematic of the way that they're solving problems in the X-Men in new ways instead of just being like, 
there's a love triangle. You're like, well, maybe what if they all dated each other? Which is kind of interesting. I do find it quite surprising that Jean and Scott just got back together again, though, because if you read New X-Men from the early 2000s, like their marriage is falling apart. But now it's, I guess it's working. So good for them. Well, they were dead for a really long time. And like you said, it is kind of interesting that it seems emblematic of the way that the Krakoa era is solving problems in a different way and telling stories that haven't been told before. So hopefully they'll continue to do that for at least another few more years. So that was an interesting comic we read, but I also definitely read some of the older stuff because like I mentioned, I went back and reread some Young Avengers comics because I was feeling nostalgic and bored. And I read Children's Crusade, which is kind of a big crossover where like the Avengers and the Young Avengers and the X-Men are all hanging out or actually not hanging out. They're actively fighting each other. (laughs) And there were two characters called Richter and Shatterstar appeared as part of that crossover. And I was like, hmm, you seem interesting. I'm going to go read your publication history. And then I proceeded to do that and also tell Pi about it constantly. So now she's invested in them despite having like not read their comics. I've read a few things they're in, but definitely not as much as you. So that was one of the things that I decided to do. And that's what sort of got me into reading some of the older comics because anything pre 2000s, I'm like, uh, continuity is scary. I don't know what's happening. Who are you people? But I was just like, if I follow two characters, surely I can just understand what's going on with them. So I decided to do that. And the characters that I happened to pick were Richter and Shatterstar, who are like notable because they were one of Marvel's first prominent gay superhero couples. But I think they're also just really fun characters individually. I like their powers. I like their personalities. They have kind of interesting relationship. So I kind of had an interesting time reading them. Richter is a Mexican mutant with seismic powers so he can cause earthquakes. The funny thing is that his like civilian name is Julio Richter, like Richter like the Richter scale and I guess he just happened to be lucky enough to get powers that suited his last name which is hilarious to me. It kind of is. But I like him because he turns up as like a young teenager he's maybe like 14 or 15 in the 80s but he's been in comics since then so you can sort of read through his mid-teens to his mid-20s and I'm like hmm I have read like 10 years of your life and watched you develop as a character and I'm attached to you now. He's sort of a fun character. I like that he like is often kind of anti-authoritarian and has a punk aesthetic in the 80s. But he also has sort of a darker side where he's got like a lot of familial issues and he often deals with like mental illness and suicidal ideation. But I find him an interesting character. It's been kind of fun to see him develop over the decades, especially he and Shatterstar had like a lot of subtext in the 90s and then their relationship got canonized as actually romantic in the 2000s. So that's kind of interesting. I like Shatterstar because he's like just kind of a dumb character, but also like I have a lot of emotions over him because he starts off as being like a very 90s character. You've read some of the comics he appears in Pi. Yes, Shatterstar is an interdimensional alien gladiator and time traveler from a world called Mojo World from 100 years in the future. And he has like bright red hair that's like really long and kind of weird and wears a super bright white outfit and he has a sword with double blades and one of his eyes has like a star tattoo over it. He's very extra looking. Yeah, he's literally a gladiator from a reality TV world, which is kind of a fascinating concept. But he starts off as just being like a very 90s, tough, stoic warrior dude with cool swords. But he has this kind of interesting arc where he, instead of being an emotionless warrior guy, learns to experience emotions and like becomes really close with Richter and kind of learns about life on Earth and being human through the relationship. And it's heavily implied honestly that like they're a couple or that like their relationship is more complicated than just being friends and like 
maybe there's something unrequited, maybe it's requited. There's like a lot of subtext throughout the 90s, like they become friends. But then in the early 2000s, a writer's like, yeah, they were together in the 90s, which is sort of an interesting development. I like him because he's just kind of like, he starts off as being sort of a silly character, but then you're like, oh, this is actually kind of like interesting, thoughtful development. But he's sort of also a terrible character to be a fan of because I really like him. But basic questions like, who is he? What are his powers? What comics should I read to get a sense of him are like impossible to answer, which is why it was kind of like a quarantine undertaking to read about these two characters because they bounce across like a lot of different books and a lot of different writers. And like, I actually liked the stuff in the 90s featuring these characters, but some of the 2000s were rough for them. So like, it's a thing where I'm like, I'm a fan of these characters, but I truly follow them on like kind of a wild ride across comics and different writers. But now I'm like, oh man, I'm really attached to them. And it's kind of interesting because it's such a long running format that you can watch characters develop over literal decades of publication. And it sort of feels like interesting and organic. I actually had a similar experience with watching two characters organically develop over the course of some decades because Lulu told me, hey, I'm reading the publication history for Victor and Shatterstar, like the whole thing in chronological order. And my first thought was like, wow, that's a lot. And then my second thought was, I am sitting in my dorm at college. In between Zoom classes, I have nothing to do because I can't go anywhere and I can't really like see my friends or hang out with them in person very much. So how about I try to read the entire publication history of the relationship between the X-Men characters Rogue and Gambit. And I did. There were some epic highs and lows, but ultimately I thought it was really fun. Rogue, aka Anna Marie, is a member of the X-Men. She's a mutant who started out as a supervillain, and she eventually became a hero. Her ability is that she can absorb memories and powers from people, but unfortunately she also absorbs their life force, meaning that skin-to-skin contact with her is basically really bad news and could land you in a coma or dead. She's kind of a flying brick because she's super strong and invulnerable and can fly thanks to absorbing Carol Danvers back in the 80s. I think it's really fun that she just is like you described kind of a flying brick like she's really strong and she can fly and she's invulnerable because I feel like there's a lot of female characters who have kind of hands-off powers like there's a lot of telepaths like Emma Frost or Betsy Braddock or Kanan or Jean Grey or like people who do magic like Wanda Maximoff and a lot of their abilities just involve kind of like striking a cool pose but like rogue is like i will punch you and i kind of like how hands-on it is because there's so many male characters who have like hand-to-hand combat kind of abilities like wolverine who has claws coming out of hands or colossus who can turn into metal but i feel like there aren't as many female characters like that so i kind of like that oftentimes rogue's like fighting method is to just literally fling herself at people it's great i know i love that she'll just like punch straight through a wall no hesitation she's great She was also raised by the supervillains Mystique and Destiny, who were totally married. Like, they were definitely lesbians, except Chris Claremont, who invented them, wasn't allowed to say that in the 80s at the time the characters were introduced. So they were kind of like ambiguous gal pals who were really close and raising a kid and share a house. But they're totally just friends. I've read some early comics featuring them, and like, they'll just be sitting in the house that they own together in like bathrobes, drinking coffee, talking about the child they're raising. And I'm like, so these supervillains are like totally married, right? But like, I guess they weren't allowed to say that on page, which is sort of wild because you read it and you're like, yes, like these are domestic supervillains raising a child together. Well, luckily they have been allowed to say that in more recent years. Actually at North Star's wedding in Astonishing X-Men, Rogue turns up really briefly in the background and she's talking to someone else wondering if Mystique and Destiny would have wanted to get legally married if they could have, because at this point in comics, Mystique was alive, but Destiny had died. But anyway, I think it's fun that Rogue has two moms, and I'm glad that comics are actually acknowledging this fact now. 
the other character in the couple that I read is Gambit, aka Remy Lebeau, who's a Cajun mutant thief and member of the X-Men who can kinetically charge objects, usually playing cards, and make them explode. He's like very extra and dramatic and a little bit silly sometimes, but he's also a thief and he's really fun. He's kind of a rogue and a scoundrel. Also, every third word that comes out of his mouth is French. You read a comic featuring Gambit, like, he's going to say mon cher at one point. It's just like, a given? Oh, I legit had Google Translate open at one point when I was reading some comics with him because I just could not keep track of what he was saying because I don't speak French. But anyway, he's very fun. He's also known for being kind of a flirt. So, like, he pretty aggressively pursues Rogue for a relationship, but they can't actually touch because... Her mutation means that he'll get the life force sucked out of him if they make skin-to-skin contact. Like, the first time they kissed, she put him in a coma for three weeks. That's rough. They're kind of famous for having this huge, dramatic, up-and-down, again, on-again, off-again relationship for about three decades because they met in the very early 90s. They were on the same X-Men team and they pretty quickly started flirting, but there was a lot of barriers for their relationship, such as the fact that they can't touch or that, like, Gambit has a very angry ex-wife from the Assassin's Guild who wants to kill him. Gambit was secretly working for the villain Mr. Sinister, and Rogue left him to die in Antarctica when she found out about that. Basically, there's a lot of drama in their relationship, and I feel like they're a good example of the way that the interpersonal relationships in X-Men comics can really read like a soap opera. Literally, like... I feel like if your main exposure to the X-Men is the movies, which I keep referencing, even though I said we weren't going to talk about them, but I don't know why. I feel like, anyway, if your main exposure to, like, superhero teams is movies, I don't think you get how much they're like a soap opera. Like, there's so much, like, evil clones and breakups and makeups and drama and people getting dumped at the altar and, like, marrying your clone and, like, unmarrying the clone. I'm sorry, I keep making fun of Scott Summers' marital problems, but they're really funny, so I can't stop. They are funny. <laughs> I'm sorry, Scott, they just are. You just anyway. up married this lady that looked exactly like your dead girlfriend, and then you were shocked when she was a clone. Okay, but, like, she wasn't originally supposed to be a clone. Okay, that's... Anyway, so Rogue and Gambit have had a lot of barriers in their relationship, including but not limited to Rogue's mutation, Rogue's mom, Mystique, deeply disapproving of their relationship and trying to break them up, like, various supervillains getting in the way of things, the difficulties of just having a relationship while you're also a superhero. But I think they're really fun. I care about them a lot because, because they couldn't, like, kiss or do traditionally romantic things. They kind of had to develop the characters by having them spend time together and banter and like open up to each other emotionally. So the writers had to actually show their relationship instead of telling it. And as a result, I am invested in them. Also, they have some interesting and totally unintentional character parallels because Rogue and Gambit were created independently of each other and they only had the characters get together just because like they were on the same team and like why not but they're both southern they're both raised by kind of morally dubious parents they have some dark pasts they have a history of not really being able to control their mutant abilities so there's just like a lot of interesting character parallels and they're really fun to read about because they make a great team when they're fighting supervillains as long as they're getting along that day the most recent comics that I've read featuring Rogue and Gambit are Rogue and Gambit Ring of Fire, which was a mini series about them having to work together after they broke up and they actually ended up going to couple therapy, which was great. And then X-Men Gold was the comic where they got married. They actually stole someone else's wedding because two other members of the X-Men were going to get married and then one of them got cold feet at the last minute and stopped it. That was a legendary comic issue. It was. It was just so in character of Gambit to steal a wedding. And then there's also Mr. and Mrs. X, which was a comic series about their 
life as a married couple and like their honeymoon getting interrupted by intergalactic alien wars and stuff like that. It was really fun. And they were also currently starring together in the ongoing comic Excalibur, where they're not as much of the main focus, but they're part of the same team and they're kind of settled into their marriage and just having fun and doing adventures together. The funny thing about us both deciding that we were going to read our way through the publication history of two separate iconic X-Men characters is that by pure coincidence, we both were like reading through 30 decades of comics, but we were both like reading through with the goal of getting to Excalibur because that was the ongoing comic that featured these characters. You had way much more stuff to get through because Rogue and Gambit are like very popular characters with a lot of fans who've like literally just had series focused on them being married and having adventures. But Richter happens to be in Excalibur right now. So I was like reading through to Excalibur being like, I guess that's my final goal is because I'm going to catch up at some point. And you were also reading through 30 years of comics with the goal of getting to Excalibur. So it was sort of funny that like we accidentally converged in the same ongoing comic. Even yeah, though we, we did totally different characters. You kind of win as a fan of iconic X-Men couples though, because Rogue and Gambit had this like super on again, off again relationship for decades. And then eventually I guess people were just like persistent enough about it that they got married and like had a comic series about them going on adventures and being married and working through their issues. Whereas Richter and Shatterstar's relationship development kind of goes like, they become a couple, they break up, they get back together again. No one hears about them for several years. They break up. They get back together again. No one hears about them for several years. Well, I mean, I had to deal with a truly unfathomable number of really dramatic breakups before I managed to get to the happy domestic cat parents section of their life. So like, you know, it took a while to get there, but I'm very invested in them now. And I'm glad that they're living their best lives on Krakoa with Gambit's three cats. And I'm just like chilling. Yeah, I mean, sometimes like the drama can be kind of fun because you want characters to develop and have conflict. And sometimes that means it results in romantic drama. But it, it just is sort of funny to me that we accidentally read through characters who don't really share that much in common, but just happen to be in the same comic. I think it took you much longer, though, because Rogue and Gambit are just featured in so much more things. They are. But I think ultimately we both had a lot of fun with our respective read-throughs and even though we are both focused on two individual characters each I think we both learned a lot about X-Men comics in general and like events from the 90s that I hadn't previously read so it was really fun but also kind of informational. Yeah because the idea of just reading through comics straight was very overwhelming so I feel like picking two characters and just being like I'm going to read through their history or like the highlights of their history because even if they're not Rogue and Gambit levels of famous, they have been around for quite a while and featured in a lot of stuff. So I was like cherry picking at points, but it also kind of like, you really scour the highs and lows of comic books when you decide to read through one character's publication history. There are some trade-offs. Like I was like, I'll read this for this character, but I don't really like it. Like the series, for instance, that puts Richter and Shatterstar into a textually romantic relationship as opposed to just a subtextually romantic one is X-Factor Investigations by Peter David, which is quite frankly a garbage comic and that is the only good thing I got out of it, but like, I sure did read it for them. I'm so sorry. I may not have approved of the comic series where Rogue broke up with Gambit and then had a rebound by trading Magneto, but it was technically a well-written series. Like, we're not gonna get into it, but X-Factor Investigations was a dark time in my life and a dark Let's time. Let's not get into it. And how about we talk about another comic series we both read and really enjoyed, which is Generation X by Christina Strain. Oh, that was so fun. I liked that comic a lot. I really enjoy X-Men comics when they're about people with weird and inconvenient powers, which this really is. 
Yeah, so Generation X was a 2017 reboot of the comic of the same name from the 90s that also focused on student X-Men at Xavier's school. Sadly, it only ran for two volumes, which is much shorter than the original series did, but I still love it anyway. The premise is that Jubilee, a member of the old Generation X, is now one of the teachers. She's also a vampire and has an adopted baby because she's been doing a lot since the days of the 90s. She's going to be a teacher for this new generation of students, which includes Benjamin Deeds, a shapeshifter called Morph, Trevor Hawkins, aka iBoy, who's literally just a very good boy with lots of eyes. I love iBoy. He is a sweetheart. I know that he's kind of terrifying to look at, but he is just nice at heart. He really is. Uh, Lynn Lee, aka Nature Girl, who has horns and can talk to animals, and she's fun. Nathaniel Carver, aka Hindsight, who can read memories by touching people. Roxy Washington, aka Bling, who is made of diamonds. And Quentin Quire, aka Kid Omega, he of the pink mohawk, very strong telepathic abilities, and deeply annoying arrogance. I feel like my review of this series could just be that meme that's like, I love all the Generation X 2017 kids equally. Earlier that day, I don't care for Quentin Choir. Listen, I don't even know what Quentin was doing in this comic because I thought he graduated Xavier's in Wolverine and the X-Men, which was like 10 years ago. Yeah, he's been like around a long time. Like a lot of the characters in Generation X are either recent characters or completely new for that series. Like I think Nathaniel was just created by Christina Strain for that team. But Quentin has been around for like a really long time and his thing is basically just being really annoying. I mean, he's a really strong telepath. That's kind of his thing, but also he's annoying. Anyway, I really liked Generation X because it's a comic focused on the kids, not their teachers. And they're just trying to survive and train at Xavier's, but they also have to deal with supervillains attacking the school and romantic drama and getting in arguments with their roommate and typical teenager stuff like that. And it's just really fun. I liked that it had a lot lower stakes than Saving the World, and it featured people with mostly non-super powerful abilities and some that even seemed low-key useless like being covered in lots of eyeballs and they also realistically read like teens they talk like teens they have teen problems and it was just really satisfying and nice to read about that was a good series i liked it a lot it had very like lovable characters who i feel like had nice dynamics and growth with each other it didn't run for that long time but like i got very attached to the characters which i think is the sign of a good comic i also enjoyed like there's a fair amount of on-page diversity for characters like Nathaniel is Korean-American and gay, and Benjamin is gay, and they have romance. Bling is also a lesbian. She's also Black, but because she's a living diamond, you can't really tell that. Yeah, unfortunately. See, Lynn is also Asian, and I feel like Clinton Choir is, like, maybe not cis and straight, but this has never been confirmed on page. He was acting like he was in a love triangle with Benjamin and Nathan, but I don't think that's how Benjamin and Nathaniel were acting about it, so I'm not quite sure. They weren't, no. One thing that I wish about this series is that I really wish Bling's girlfriend, Mercury, had been in this more because I think the idea of them very shiny girlfriends is nice. Yeah, Mercury's name is like self-evident, I think. She's made of Mercury. But anyway, I liked the kids a lot and the main romance is between Nathaniel and Benjamin and they're just really cute. They have like a decent problem in their relationship to overcome, which is that Nathaniel's powers mean that whenever he touches someone, he absorbs all their memories. And he really doesn't like doing that because it's super invasive and he hates gaining other people's memories. So it's kind of a thing that he and Benjamin have to work past, but they're a really cute couple. And I liked their relationship development a lot. I'm getting a sense that you really enjoy superhero powers that cause relationship drama because you really liked Rogue and Gambit and I was reading this and I like sent you a text being like, hey Pi, guess what? There's another superhero couple who can't touch but are in love. Well, guess what? You were right. 
Unfortunately, most of the kids in the Generation X series have kind of been in comic book limbo since it ended in 2017. Quentin Quires on the ongoing X-Force title because he finally managed to graduate Xavier's. And iBoy was on the X-Factor title that only lasted for 10 issues, but everyone else has kind of not been around, which makes me sad because I really enjoyed them. I frequently think about Nathaniel and Benjamin. Are they happy in Conquest Limbo? Are they okay? Did they ever graduate high school? I like them. I would like them to come back. I like that Nathaniel is a male superhero whose power basically is just being really empathetic and the way that that is inconvenient, but also means that you can understand people really well. And he has like he has to be in touch with his emotions, basically. I found that really interesting. And they're just, it was a sweet relationship. Like there was a little back and forth and some problems, but they resolved the problems. And also I kind of liked that they're never, like the fact that they were two guys was not the problem. The problem was that they were superheroes and facing problems that came with that, which I thought was kind of nice and refreshing to see in a comic, but they haven't really been in much or like anything since then, which I think is too bad because I liked the group dynamic. I'm sad that kind of the comic ended so soon and we didn't get to see more of it because I enjoyed the characters. Basically, Generation X has a lot of really lovable, enjoyable kids, and it was really fun to read something that was set at the X-Mansion that actually focused on the students and their training rather than the teachers going off to save the day. And I'm really sad that it only lasted for two volumes, but I enjoyed it a lot as it was. However, if Marvel is listening, please put Nathaniel Carver in something. I miss him so much. Also, on the topic of more iconic X-Men things that did not run for two volumes and have an incredibly niche fan base, which is sadly what Generation X kind of is, I did decide to read the Dark Phoenix Saga because I wanted to earn some nerd cred. And I was like, okay, I'm reading X-Men comics because I'm really bored. I'm going to read the most iconic X-Men story of all, which is basically when Jean Grey goes kind of mad with cosmic power. I know there's two movie adaptations of this comic storyline, and I have never seen them, and I never will. So I kind of went into this completely blind. I think I knew vaguely, like, Jean gets powerful. It doesn't go well. That's kind of the most famous thing, that she dies at the end of the series because it was famous and still is for actually killing off a member of the X-Men. Even if it wasn't permanently. But I don't know. It was sort of interesting to go into a very iconic piece of pop culture with not a lot of preconceived notions about it. So, like, the basic summary of the Dark Phoenix saga is that Jean Grey, who's sort of the token girl on the original five-person X-Men team, who is a telepath, has become like more and more and more powerful over the past issues, and she becomes this super powerful, kind of malevolent, uncontrollable being called the Phoenix. And she goes sort of like cosmically mad and eats a star, and then a bunch of people die because of that, and these aliens get super angry at her and want to put her on trial. But then at the conclusion of the arc, she kind of chooses to die, and that's how like they solve the problem of the Phoenix. Except then there's like all this complicated stuff later about how it wasn't really Jean. But the point being that she became really powerful and then died. One thing that I find really interesting about the Dark's Phoenix saga is that like Lulu, I was vaguely aware of it and I haven't read the original comic before and I haven't seen either of the movie adaptations, but I kind of knew what happened in them. And what I knew of them kind of presented Jean turning into the Phoenix as like a ooh, women can't control their emotions, she's too powerful for her own good, we have to restrain her kind of thing. But in the actual comic, she turns into the phoenix specifically because she has been manipulated and gaslit by a bunch of powerful, horrible men. 
specifically the Hellfire Club, who are like this group of kind of old, white, rich guy mutants who really want to manipulate Jean for their own ends and use her power. And she's being put into illusions by this guy called Mastermind. And she's like being lied to. And she kind of ends up snapping. And that's when she goes and eats the star. And I find it very interesting that the Dark Phoenix saga is kind of more about the mistreatment of Jean and the way that she's manipulated and abused by men and how that finally causes her to snap and turn into the Phoenix completely. And I think the way that it's often presented in pop culture, at least the way that I've learned about it through osmosis, is kind of like a Jean is too powerful for her own good thing. So it was actually very interesting to read the original comic and see that it doesn't present Jean like that. It presents her as someone who's very powerful and has been gaslit and manipulated by a bunch of men until she finally can't take it anymore and does something really bad. It also introduces a lot of other iconic X-Men characters. Kitty Pride, who is sort of like the spunky teen girl member of the X-Men, sort of like the viewpoint character for a really long time, is introduced in this. And there was a really interesting part where the X-Men come to recruit her, but then like some bad stuff happens and they're like, oh no, actually we don't want our daughter to go with you. I think she'd be safer with us. And Jean like uses her telepathy to like change the parents' minds and make them agree that Kitty should go to the school. And it's just like, hey, why are you looking at me like that? Like, that's totally normal. That's a reasonable thing to do in this situation. Which kind of makes you think like, is this something that Professor X has done before? Does Jean have like a terrible role model and that's part of the reason she's done this? I was like really surprised when I read that because I don't know, it just seemed like such a casual violation of people's like autonomy that I was like, hmm, obviously this is her being bad because she's the Phoenix. But I kind of wonder if like, not only is Jean being manipulated by guys who actively want to misuse her, but I kind of wonder like, has Professor X really been the best mentor he could possibly be? And is he partially responsible for Jean turning into the Phoenix like this? I think that's definitely what I got from that as well. I was also surprised about how many famous characters were introduced in this because aside from Kitty Pride, we're also introduced to Emma Frost, who's a villain in this comic, but eventually gets a bit of a redemption arc and becomes a member of the X-Men. And also Dazzler, who's kind of like a mutant disco singer who's not as popular as people thought she was going to be when she was introduced, but it's still a known figure. So I was really surprised just be reading along and then I was like, oh, there's Emma Frost, there's Kitty, there's Dazzler. This is fun. I'm seeing where these characters came from. Also, the ending did kind of hit. It I really was like, did. Like, I, I knew it was coming, but still, ouch. I was like, I, I am sad, actually, because I had never really read anything featuring Jean Grey or a lot of the other early X-Men. I hadn't really read much Claremont X-Men comics before this, but I was sort of like, oh, this is sort of like a tragedy. I'm, I'm kind of feeling sad. Like, there's a bit where it just says that, like, Jean and Scott were young and in love and were heroes, and it's just, like, that simple. And I was like, oh, I am sad now. Yeah, and then, like, the very last line of the Dark Phoenix saga is about how Jean Grey could have lived as a god but she chose to die as a human and that actually kind of hit like I knew that Jean was going to die at the end of the Dark Phoenix saga because that's kind of what it's famous for but the moment she actually chose that she would rather die than turn into the phoenix again and harm her friends was really powerful actually. There was definitely one aspect of this comic though that I did not find as compelling or nuanced like I was surprised when I went into this that it was more of a story about being manipulated into kind of snapping rather than just like, whoa, women can't control themselves if they're powerful. But the one thing that I ended up really not liking was how the character of Aurora Monroe or Storm is treated in this. And Storm is well known for being one of the most prominent black female superheroes. She is sort of like a Kenyan mutant who can control the weather. She's super cool and I love her. But during 
part of this comic because the supervillain mastermind is like manipulating Jean and trying to get her to become evil. He sort of puts this illusion around her that she is a historical noblewoman from like colonial American times who is married to him and is a different person entirely. And he's trying to kind of put her off balance and like seduce her to his side. But he makes her like hallucinate basically that she's a different woman entirely and that Storm is her slave. And there's just like a lot of like really gratuitous scenes about it. And I was just like, mm, I know Mastermind is bad, but like, did we have to watch Aurora get demeaned like this? And it just felt very unnecessary. Like bad shit happens in the Dark Phoenix saga, but I felt like that was unnecessary bad stuff. Yeah, definitely agreed. I think that was one of the ways that I could tell this was kind of a dated comic from the 80s before I was born because it was definitely really unnecessary and gross and like there is enough bad things happening in this comic already you don't need to have that. I don't think that's something that's been included in any of the adaptations of the Dark Phoenix saga for a good reason and it was definitely not something I enjoyed. Yeah I was like yes we can show supervillains being bad. Yes this is supposed to be a bad thing but it still feels gratuitous to have the powerful Black female superhero be demeaned like this on page by someone who is supposed to be her friend, even if she's like being manipulated and gaslit. It just felt like I didn't like it. Like I thought overall that I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the Dark Phoenix saga as sort of like more of a cosmic tragedy rather than a kind of cautionary tale about how women can't control power. But that bit, I was just like, yes, I think I'm fine if we never revisit that and just like, don't include it in any adaptations. I think my main takeaway from reading the original comic is that I feel like I have a bit of a better understanding why both of the movie adaptations of this really famous comic have gotten kind of bad reviews and reception. I think it's because they don't really tend to focus on all of the people that have manipulated Jean throughout her life because I don't think either of the adaptations include the, the Hellfire Club or Mastermind at all. And Mastermind is a really key factor in Jean finally snapping and becoming the Phoenix. And I think without him, it just kind of feels like a, ooh, she's too powerful, she can't handle it kind of thing. So maybe if they had included a bit more of that in the movies, who knows? It definitely was interesting to finally read for myself a really iconic piece of pop culture. And I also read Days of Future Past by Chris Claremont, which is another really iconic X-Men adaptation, which just convinced me that the modern day X-Men movies really suck because they took out Kitty Pride's role and gave it to Wolverine. And like, that's such a terrible decision, but we're not here to dunk on the X-Men movies. So maybe let's move on. Speaking of Wolverine, I think the funniest line in the Dark Phoenix saga is that at one point the narration refers to Wolverine as the shortest, feistiest member of the X-Men, which reminded me that in the comics, Wolverine is like 5'3". Yeah, they made him taller in the movies because he's played by Hugh Jackman, who's not like short. But Wolverine's whole deal is that he's short and hairy and brutal, like an actual Wolverine. But he's like taller in the movies and I feel like you lose some of the like core aspect of the character if you make him tall. Anyway, the Dark Phoenix saga is mostly a tragedy, but that one line did make me laugh. And now, skipping ahead several decades in publication history, we're going to talk about another comic that we both read and have thoughts on, which is the Iceman solo series by Cena Grace. My main thing about the Iceman series is that I read it and I was like, wait, I care about Bobby Drake a lot now. Me too. Okay, so like we've mentioned, Iceman is a member of the five core founding X-Men characters and his powers are, as you might guess from his name, related to ice and snow and all things cold. 
he also, like we mentioned, came out as gay in 2015 after like a lot of stuff that reads heavily like he was in the closet for like, several years of publication and stuff. Not even years, decades. Yeah, okay, well, I haven't read all of that. I'm just going off of like 2012. Well, anyway, so this Zola series follows Bobby after he comes to terms with being gay. And it's about him coming out to people around him, trying to date guys for the first time, while also dealing with being an X-Men who fights supervillains on a regular basis. However, because this is an X-Men comic, the way that he comes out as gay is very complicated and involves time travel and alternate selves and all sorts of confusing stuff like that. Like we mentioned, one of the first X-Men comics we both read quite a while ago was All New, All Different X-Men by Brian Michael Bendis. And the premise of that series was basically that Beast, who is the science guy of the X-Men, decides to kind of reach back in time and pluck out the original five X-Men and bring them to the present to sort of remind them of who they were and what they stood for and like kind of remind them that they've maybe strayed from their dreams and original vision. And that basically means that there are teen versions of the adult X-Men characters running around wreaking havoc and seeing what they're up to in the future and generally like being confused and stuff and confronting what their future selves have gone through. And that lasted for quite a long time. And in the final issue of that series, Teenage Jean Grey reads Teenage Bobby Drake's mind and is like, hey, Bobby, did you know that you're gay? And he's like, no, I'm not. And she's like, I'm a telepath. I can tell that you're totally gay. It is kind of a weird scene. I'm going to be honest. I did not love it even when I first read it. I do think it is supposed to be messed up because from what I remember, a lot of Teenage Jean Grey's character arc was around the fact that she is a really powerful telepath who doesn't really have control over her abilities. So I think it kind of makes sense that she would accidentally invasively read someone's mind like that. And I do think it is supposed to be a kind of messed up story about a guy kind of being outed to himself and being forced to acknowledge who he is. But like, yeah, there's their aspects of that scene that I don't like either. I do really like though, that it leads to sort of a story where the younger teenage Bobby, who after some prompting from Jean has acknowledged that he's gay and has just sort of been faking being interested in girls, decides to go confront his older self, who is in like his early 30s now and has been dating women and has not been out as gay and has not been giving anyone signals that he's anything other than heterosexual. And he confronts him about it and is like, so I'm I'm gay, are you gay? Like, what's up with this? Is this like a time travel thing? Is this a nature versus nurture thing? And the older Bobby reveals that he has been in the closet and he is gay and he's like kind of been hiding that from himself, but his younger self coming out sort of forces him to acknowledge that part of himself. And I really liked the conversation between the two of them, actually. Like the original scene where Bobby comes out as gay is sort of forced and awkward in some ways that are intentional and other ways that I just didn't quite like. But I did actually really like the idea of adult Bobby being confronted by his younger self about this. So the solo series sort of follows the emotional fallout from that as older Bobby is like, okay, fine, I'll also come out as gay and have to navigate my life, but this like changes a lot about my life and I'm not as young as my teen self. It's the kind of coming out that can only happen in a superhero comic, but I do think it's really interesting because younger Bobby is a bit more comfortable coming out as gay because he's a lot younger, he hasn't had as many years in the closet, but older Bobby is, it's kind of unclear how old the original X-Men are at this point because comics don't always like to give characters ages, but like he's in his 30s at this point. He's been in the closet for a really long time. He's dated a lot of other female characters. So this series is kind of about him coming to terms with a part of his identity that he's been hiding from other people and from himself really for a really long time. And so although it's a superhero comic, it has a lot of stuff that's grounded in reality, like 
not being sure that your parents will accept you when you tell them that you're gay or having to tell your ex-girlfriend that you are gay and have been the entire time that you two were dating and stuff like that. I like this series because I feel like it actually makes the X-Men mutant metaphor work because if you have someone who is metaphorically kind of gay because he has to tell people that he has superpowers, it's like, that's a story, I guess. People like to use magical races or superheroes as a stand-in for marginalized groups a lot in fiction. It's not unique to the X-Men, but it's like more interesting and powerful if the story isn't just, my parents don't accept me because I have superpowers. It's like, well, my parents already don't accept me. And as well as being a member of a fictional marginalized group, I am also gay and have struggled with that for most of my life, but now I'm coming out as an adult. So I have to deal with the fact that I am supposed to be a role model to younger superheroes and save the day all the time, but I feel really awkward about dating guys because I've never done it before. And also my younger self is somehow like more comfortable with this than me. And like the contrast is really unfortunate. And like, there are layers to this story that I feel like are made stronger by not just being metaphorically a marginalized group, but also being gay on top of being a mutant. And I feel like this series really nails that. Dean and Grace has invented the most terrifying time travel concept ever, which is that your younger self comes to the future, comes out of the closet, and immediately has a better dating life than you, and like already has a boyfriend. And meanwhile, Bobby, older Bobby, is just sitting there being like, how did this happen? I know, like I was talking with my friends the other day about how seeing people who are younger than you and seem cooler than you is really awkward. And imagine that like times a thousand, if the younger person is also yourself, like the levels of awkwardness. But I did really like the relationship between young Bobby and old Bobby because they're basically the same person, but they've led very different lives because the younger one's a lot more naive. He hasn't seen all of the bad stuff go down with the X-Men that will in the next few years. And older Bobby is a bit more cynical, but like he tries to hide that behind being the jokey one who doesn't deal with heavy emotions and he doesn't want to like have to deal with telling his parents that he's gay. So the series is kind of about him having to actually sit down and like sort through his life and come to terms with a lot of stuff that he's been repressing and it has really good character work for a character that I don't think Iceman has ever been my favorite X-Men. I don't think he's been a lot of people's favorite X-Men. He's kind of one of the least popular members of the original five, but this series puts him in the center and manages to actually explore a lot of his emotional complexity as a character, and it's really interesting. I feel like it just had a lot of heart. Like, I, I enjoyed it, and I also think it was interesting that it ties the development of his superhero ability to his, like, emotional development, because he's been repressing an important part of himself for so long that he's also been repressing other parts of himself. So it's now only that he's acknowledged that he's gay and come out of the closet and is like working through all of that. Then he's able to kind of access the full range of his powers, which I thought was kind of fun because we have talked about this in other episodes. I really enjoy it when people's supernatural abilities are tied to their emotional state. And Iceman in Astonishing X-Men and in his solo series very much is an example of that, which I like. Actually, that's been a thing even longer than Astonishing X-Men, because one thing that I encountered in my Rogue and Gambit read is that in the 90s, there was this period where the telepath Emma Frost very briefly possessed Bobby's body, and she could suddenly use his mutant abilities, and she could do like a lot of really cool things that he couldn't, and was seemingly way more powerful than he was, and when 
she got back to her own body and had this conversation and he was like how come you can do all these things that i can't he was like well maybe there's like something that you're repressing inside yourself that means you can't access the full range of your mutant abilities and it was like really obviously a metaphor about him being in the closet but it was never really addressed after that because this was the 90s and he didn't come out for like another 20 years but i'm glad they finally followed up with that and it's very satisfying in this series that not only is bobby like more emotionally honest with himself but also he's gotten really powerful and can do a lot of really fun things with his ice abilities right like we've talked a lot about how like this series deals with identity and like emotional issues and family and coming out but also there's just like some sick parts like that part where he makes wings of ice and then flies and you're like yes superhero comics are fun Definitely. One of the more grounded things, though, is that this series has convinced me that Bobby Drake's parents suck big time. No, they really do. Like, they're just the stand-in bad parents of the X-Men, I think. Yeah, I feel so bad for him having to deal with those, because a lot of people in the X-Men don't have parents at all. Or maybe, like, they do have parents, but, like, their parents are supervillains. And Bobby's parents are just kind of, like, the -the run-of-the-mill humans, but they're also not that great to him. So there's a lot of scenes where I felt really bad on his behalf, where he's trying to, like, talk to someone and be honest about being gay, but they just don't want to hear it. Ugh, I know. His parents suck. I do feel, like, interesting looking back on it. Gabby Kinney and Teenage Bobby have kind of similar functions in regards to Laura and Bobby because they both kind of represent the innocence that their older counterparts have lost because Gabby represents like the innocence in the childhood that Laura lost as a child assassin and Teen Bobby kind of represents the openly gay years that Bobby lost while he was in the closet and like forcing himself to date women and denying his identity because he figured it would be hard enough to be a mutant and he didn't want to be like even make things even harder on himself by being gay and a mutant. But by sort of actually looking at like younger versions of themselves, these characters can kind of see like who they could have been in like a more ideal world, which is really interesting. And the sort of thing you don't get in like non-superhero media. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. I wonder what Gabby would have thought of the Teenage X-Men because I don't think they ever met, but that would be really interesting if they ever had. Yeah, unfortunately they got sent back in time back in 2018. Like they hung out for like six years in comics, going around and hopping to various series and having adventures and stuff. Though I really feel like Bobby coming out as gay is like the thing that has had the most impact from that era of comics. But they did eventually send them all back in time to like preserve the time stream, which I honestly didn't like. I accidentally read the series that this happens in after deciding I was going to avoid it because I don't like that they basically erased teenage Bobby's memories and sent him back in the past to be like, repressed and in the closet for like another decade and a half until he reaches the age of adult Bobby and comes out. Which like, I get that it was a time paradox or whatever to have two versions of them running around, but like it just seems like kind of an upsetting way to end the story to just be like, well, yeah, you came out and like got a boyfriend and we're living a happy life, but now we're going to erase your memory and like plonk you back in the 60s and you're going to be sad for the next couple of decades. I was like, really guys? Like you couldn't have come up with some other solution? That is really sad, yeah. But on the plus side, we did get this solo series about the adult Iceman. I thought it was really good. Before he came out as gay, I don't think there was really much interest in Iceman getting a solo because he was just the ice guy who made jokes sometimes. But I think that coming out as gay added a lot of depth to his character that people maybe hadn't thought about before. And as a result, this series had a lot of interesting stuff to dig into as well as just being like a superhero comic. Right. Plus, I think it's also, for me, who is not familiar with every single X-Men comic history and continuity and character, it was an easy in to X-Men comics because I read the first volume of this several years ago when it first came out 
And then I reread it and finished the series during spring quarantine. And I felt like a pretty easy entry to the X-Men universe that was focused on one guy and like some other people turn up and they reference some past events, but it's not like crazy confusing all the time. And you can pretty much get a handle on what's happening. I do know that the author of this series has talked about like feeling like the environment at Marvel was really unsupportive and that they weren't giving a lot of attention or support to this solo series and how he felt as like a gay creator not really feeling like Marvel was a good environment, which I think kind of sucks because I did like this series and definitely was doing some groundbreaking stuff at the time. Like for instance, there's a character who turns up near the end of the solo series that the writer wanted to be non-binary, but I think the writers at Marvel were like, eh, we don't really want you to do that. So it just like is sort of ambiguous, which I feel like kind of sucks because a large corporation like Marvel has a lot of power and can give a big platform to creators. So it kind of sucks that like when they did that, it wasn't a good experience. That is really unfortunate. Yeah. I do think that Cena Grace definitely had a negative experience at Marvel, but I'm still really impressed that he managed to produce a series that made me care a lot about an X-Men character that I never previously thought about even. I think that's really impressive and really good writing. Yeah. How much of the spring did I spend texting you some variation of, I can't believe I care about Iceman now? Like, probably a lot of the spring. A lot, yeah. So, I think we're going to move on to our last comic that we're covering for the day, which Lulu hasn't read, but I have read, so I'm going to give you the rundown on it. This is purely self-indulgent for Pi. It's not particularly relevant to anything else we've talked about. It is, well, it's a little relevant because, like we said when we were explaining... House of X, Powers of Ten. The current Krakoa era has a lot of different books operating out of it, a lot of ongoing titles featuring different characters. And I thought I would just talk about one that's the most recent one that I've read. I've given all of them a try, but this is one that I've read most recently to kind of explain like how fun and different a lot of the runs that are going on currently are. So the one I'm going to talk about is Hellions, which is an ongoing title by Zeb Wells. It's basically the X-Men version of Suicide Squad because on Krakoa, like we said, everyone is given a chance at amnesty and a new start for a new life, even the villains. And this series asks, but what if those villains can't or won't fit in in regular Krakoan society? And this series is kind of the answer to it. Mr. Sinister, a villain that I personally don't like, even if he was fun to read about, proposes a solution to this problem, which is a new strike force made of former villains and people who otherwise don't fit in on Krakoa and they can kind of do some of the dirty work for the Krakoan government and hopefully sort out their issues and need for violence that way rather than just like attacking random members of the public or something. Basically it's kind of like therapy but for evil people. Sinister's plan doesn't completely go as he planned it would because actually the Hellions are all united by their desire to drop kick Mr. Sinister into the sun but like hey unity is unity like they all kind of get along and it is kind of a fun series because all these people on the team are not necessarily good people. They've all had pasts as villains or mercenaries or otherwise people who've done bad stuff, but they're in this new country with a new fresh start at life. So there's a couple different characters on Hellions. I'll give like a brief rundown of who they are. Mr. Sinister might be the head of the team, but the leader in the field is Kanan who is a Japanese former ninja, and she has kind of a complicated history because she is called Psylocke, but the original Psylocke was actually this British woman called Betsy Braddock, and in the 80s, Betsy and Kanon got their bodies swapped, so Betsy was in Kanon's body and Kanon was in Betsy's, and this swap was supposed to be temporary, but unfortunately, Asian Betsy turned out to be like really, really, really popular because people liked that she was a cool ninja lady who did like sword stuff, and so unfortunately, she stayed in Kanan's body for like 30 years. I personally find it very gross because I didn't know about this the first time that I read Psylocke in a comic. I was just like, oh, cool Asian lady superhero doing superhero things. That's fun. 
Yeah, I didn't know that history about her either when I first encountered her. Like, she's been in some comics that I've read, and she was also in X-Men Apocalypse, which was a movie that came out in, like, 2016, and she was just played by an Asian actress. So unless you looked at her Wikipedia or, like, had read her publication history, you wouldn't know that she was actually a white woman who got put in an Asian woman's body for, like, exotic flavor or something, I guess, which is just really gross. Yeah, it's some serious fetishization of Asian women, and I'm not a fan of it. Thankfully, the body swap did get undone in recent years, and Betsy and Kanan are both back in their own bodies, and Kanan is being actually examined as an own character and given like autonomy and stories of her own and she's really cool she's kind of a badass she's like a former assassin she has cool telepath powers i like her a lot other members of the hellions include alex summers aka havoc who's the younger brother of cyclops he has spent his entire time on this team loudly insisting that he is fine actually and not about to have a mental breakdown and should not be on this team and is in total control of his very destructive powers to which i say alex that is a lie i'm impressed by this series which i have not read yet purely because it is made by not hate Alex Summers. And I, who have not read this series, know Alex Summers primarily from one, that time he tried to spy on his ex-girlfriend by convincing her brother to spy on her. And two, that time he turned up at North Star's wedding just to say something homophobic and leave. So to say that I don't have an amazing impression of Alex Summers would be an understatement, but somehow this series has apparently redeemed him in his eyes, which I find very impressive because he just seems kind of annoying to me. Well, I wouldn't say that it's redeemed him so much as that I just feel really bad for him because he's gone through like a lot of horrible stuff in this comic and I'm just like, oh my god, give Alex a break already. Anyway, other members of the Hellions include John Greycrow, who's a hired killer who used to work for Sinister as one of his marauders and participated in this very infamous comic event called The Mutant Massacre, which is basically exactly what it sounds like. Greycrow's now seeking redemption and is actually like having character development and is really remorseful about his time as a hired killer and stuff. And so I think he's actually a very interesting character. I'm like actually attached to him now, which is really wild. If you had told me like a year ago, Pi will have positive feelings towards John Greco, I would have been like, what? But actually I care about him now. It's kind of wild. I guess because he kind of exemplifies the idea of Krakoa being a place where people can have a fresh start and leave behind their bad past. There's also Nanny and the Orphan Maker, who are this weird mutant duo who always wear armor and are kind of notorious for like kidnapping mutant children and killing their parents. They're a source of a lot of comedy just due to like the inherent weirdness of their characters. I also feel like Nanny and the Orphan Maker are kind of symbolic of the way that there apparently are a lot of obscure characters from like the 80s and 90s running around Krakoa because I read their appearance and basically they just turn up, try to kidnap some of Jean Grey's family and then like I do not believe have really ever been seen since. But now they're starring in something and like people know who they are which I think is kind of funny. They're really funny. They're just like so incredibly weird that they always make me laugh whenever they turn up on page. I think possibly the worst member of the Hellions is Empath, aka Manuel de la Rocha, who's originally a student of Emma Frost, and he's like really remorseless and cruel and has the ability to manipulate the emotions of others, which he heavily abuses to do a lot of terrible things to other people. But luckily, he's died on pretty much every mission the Hellions has had so far, and also Greycrow has killed him twice, which endeared me to that character even more. Dude, I've been reading Classic New Mutants, like I said. Empath is genuinely one of the worst characters I have ever encountered in a comic book. That man is straight up, there is no redemption in sight for him. He is going to hell. Well, he's just the man that dies a lot in this comic. The final member of Hellions is this guy called Wild Child, who's kind of like Sabretooth and then he's like sort of a wolf person. Also, his name is Kyle, which did make me laugh very hard when I found that out because all the other 
wolfy people in comics are called like Logan and Victor and cool names. He's like Kyle. And that just made me laugh. <laughs> His thing is that he's kind of a wolf person and he's incredibly loyal to Kanan because she's the leader of their team. So that's the Hellions. Basically, it's a dark comedy book about some rather bad people who have done and are doing some rather bad things. And they also die a lot. But due to the Krakoan resurrection protocols, they can immediately get brought back to life. And this is sometimes even played for comedy. Like people will just straight up kill Empath if he gets too annoying or uses his abilities on them, which valid. It's really funny though, and I enjoy the way that it explores the idea of mutant amnesty on Krakoa for people who have previously been villains, which is kind of a thing in other comics like Black Tom Caspian X-Force or Apocalypse and Excalibur, but I think it's a really fascinating idea to have a whole team made up of former villains or people who are otherwise not the shining heroes they might want to be. I think it's interesting that they have accepting former supervillains as an official policy on Krakoa because I feel like some of what the current status quo is is just solidifying stuff that's already been true about X-Men comics. Like, it's true that oftentimes characters will die and come back to life. And it's true that often a lot of characters who start off as supervillains or have dark pasts will join the X-Men. Like, you really love Rogue and Gambit. And they both have done like terrible things in their past. Rogue was a former terrorist. Gambit was like former aided in massacre and stuff. But they've both redeemed themselves and become like members of the good guy team. But like Krakoa has really specific actual in-world policies for that being like, yes, we can bring everyone back to life. Yes, everyone's given a chance to be a good guy. So it's kind of interesting that things that are sort of unofficially a staple of X-Men comics are now officially a staple, which is kind of interesting. I think that's why it's such a fun era, yeah, because people are just like, we can bring everyone back to life now. We don't have to come up with a complicated retcon about it. But I also feel like there's definitely some bad guys that I'm like, we do not need you around here. You're genuinely irredeemable. Please leave. Oh no, I think this is definitely examined in Hellions because like I said, Empath is pretty unrepentant about his actions and is definitely portrayed as a bad guy. And Sinister might be a very campy and fun villain who's enjoyable to read about, but he's definitely portrayed as a really bad person who's probably going to get what's coming to him at some point. Whereas John Greycrow might have once been a really horrible person that participated in Mutant Massacre, but he feels genuine remorse over it and is attempting to make a different life for himself. So I think this is something that's definitely explored in the comic. The Hellions also have this like extremely weird found family vibe that I'm here for because they're just all very strange people, but they're kind of becoming friends and it's great. Weird found family is all about the X-Men. So Hellions is an ongoing title and currently my greatest hopes for it are one, I would really like someone to be head sinister. I think Kanan and Nanny should do it together because they both personally really hate him. And I would also really like Kanan and Greycrow to kiss because they're definitely like, there's a bit of something going on there. Greycrow obviously has a thing for her and it's weirdly adorable considering they're both hardened killers. I don't know how else to explain it. Also, it's a fun series. I thought I'd just mention that as an example of the way that the Krakoan status quo has changed around comics so much and is kind of giving writers a chance to try something new and bring in new characters and do things that hasn't been tried before. So I enjoyed the series. I thought it was fun. It's kind of wild how much I care about a bunch of random D-list supervillains that I've never heard of before. But I guess that's kind of the magic of X-Men comics. It is on my list to read. I am currently reading a bunch of other stuff, but you keep talking to me about Kanan, so I probably should go read it at some point. I recently learned that I can abuse my status as a college student this summer by using my college library's academic interlibrary loan system to request 
things that I read for pleasure, not just academic texts. So like the other day I requested Ten of Swords, which is this extremely large 700 page bind up of X-Men comics. And I like walked into the circulation desk to pick it up. And usually it's like, oh, someone's requesting some obscure text on like gender in Indonesia from another college library across the state. But like, no, I walked in, I was just like, please give me my X-Men comics. So that's a new power that I will definitely be abusing for the rest of time I'm on campus, which means I probably will read Hellions at some point. I'm kind of working my way through older X-Men comics now though, because I realized that it's kind of fun to have more context for characters in the modern day stuff, because you can be like, oh, I know who that is, or ooh, interesting way that you're writing that character now. But I probably will read that at some point because I just say I don't think you need to do that with Hellions in fact I think you might be better off if you don't read the comic history of some of the characters because Grey Crow used to go by an extremely offensive code name that thankfully they dropped in this comic and I wince every time it turns up in an older comic so oh yeah I mean I'm not planning on reading the publication history of John Grey Crow or something but there's just like a lot of other stuff that I am working my way through I promise that I read other things besides X-Men comics these days. I feel like I've said that on this podcast before, but I promise it's true. Well, I think we've had a pretty good episode talking about what we've been reading lately. And who knows, if you keep using your interlibrary loan privileges, maybe we'll even someday do a part two. Oh, that would be fun. I am very curious to see where the Krakoa era goes because it's a very interesting new stage for comics, but I think it's also in-universe supposed to be built on some very shaky pillars. So I'm kind of curious to see how it develops. Agreed. So I think ultimately we've had a good time in the last few months reading some older comics and catching up on new ones. And maybe if this episode has convinced you to pick up a comic, then I think we succeeded. With that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, or shoot us an email at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet at gmail.com.